And uh, fellows, would you pass out some scriptures? If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. These fine men will get you a Bible. And you're going to open up to the book of James. James is right after Hebrews in the, in the uh, New Testament. <clears throat> the book of James. Once you've turned to the book of James, what we do here at Calvary Chapel is we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord and we sit for the word of the teacher. So if you'd stand with me, I'm not going to have you stand long because we're not covering a lot this morning uh, in the book of James. We're in James chapter one, James chapter one. All right, James chapter one. Here we go. You ready? I'm, I'm. Stretching it out because I have to stand through the whole sermon and watch. This is all you have to stand for. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. All right, let's pray. (laughs) Lord, thank you for the opening of this epistle. And we ask even in this short verse, there's lots to be shared. And so, God, would you establish that in our hearts? We need to understand who it's from in order to receive what it's about. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right, sit down. See, I told you, it wasn't that hard. <clears throat> I, I, get a, I get a kick out of this book. It's one of, one of my favorites. Uh, uh, Martin Luther called it the epistle of straw um, because he, and it wasn't really derogatory because uh, he, he always wanted to declare, Martin Luther always wanted to declare that it's by grace you've been saved, not by works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And when he got to the book of James, he was basically saying not that the epistle is worthless. What he was saying is it doesn't really uh, go into greater detail as to this idea of being saved by grace. Because you're going to see in the book of James that James talks about uh, faith without works is dead. Uh, you tell me you have faith, yet you have no works. And he said, it's two sides of the same coin. You can tell me you're saved. You can tell me you're a Christian. But as we know as Christians, there's fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. As we see the fruits of the Spirit, if those aren't evident in your life, if, if you know, as, as we prayed over the offering, if that isn't, if that isn't a, a, a picture of your maturity in Christ, this idea that there will be works in association with your faith, that's just, that's a, that's a given. And, and, and it's evidence in that sense. Now, you can be saved and your works could be measured and it may not be the same as someone else's, but it will still be evident that that you are saved because of your works. It's it's a it's evidence of your salvation is your works. And so he says he says faith without works is dead. And so Martin Luther struggled with that because he was so emphatic about this idea that salvation by grace, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast that we've been saved by grace, that that our works don't save us. And let me let me declare that. You will be saved, and the evidence of your salvation will be your works. But your works aren't what saves you. It's your faith in Christ. It's His righteousness put on your account that saves you. That's what makes you right before the Father in heaven. And so James understood that. And he's probably one of the most unique guys in all of, of, of Scripture and all of, of the witnessing of, of Jesus' life to be able to write this epistle, especially in the way in which he did, because the epistle deals with church unity, it deals with, with uh, trials, it deals with anger, it deals with the law. Uh, more than 15 times he makes references to the Sermon on the Mount. So James was deeply influenced by the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus taught his disciples. And that the Sermon on the Mount wasn't for all the world, it was for his disciples. He gathered his disciples to himself 
and he began to teach them. And he says, blessed are, you know, and he goes through, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And he goes through all of this. And, and so uh, James was deeply affected by the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to see this in his writings. And, and more than that, uh, James had this heart for church unity. And, and so you go, okay, well, who is this James? Who is this guy? And it's an interesting uh, author, probably the most interesting author of any epistle or any book of the scriptures. Uh, this is one of the most unique authors of any epistle. Epistle is a big word that just means letter. Um, this is probably one of the most unique authors of any letter in the scriptures. It, there, there were four James, Jameses that we saw in scripture, uh, listed in scripture. One is, um, two of them were, were disciples of Jesus. Two of them were disciples of Jesus. Uh, James the Lesser, and then as you go through that, there was also a father of one of the Jameses, so that's three of them. And, and none of those, none of these two guys, the first two James, nor their dad, was the author of this epistle. Uh, it's, it's one they called James the Just. James the Just. Uh, and and uh, he is a very unique fellow, James the Just. More unique than any other... I, I, I dig this guy because I can totally relate to him uh, in a lot of ways. Um, he was, are you ready for this? L- look, at, look at what we read. Look at this. It says, James, and then it says, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So he's writing, he's writing this epistle primarily to Jewish believers. 12 tribes is another picture of the Jews. And the diaspora, where all the Jews were scattered throughout the known world, they, they estimate there were over 4 million Jews throughout all of the known world, after the diaspora, they, the, they had been sent to every vestige of the known world. And, and so he's writing this epistle to these Jews in addition to, you know, Gentile Christians, but primarily he's writing it to, to Jewish believers. And, and we know that he was a Jewish believer. He was a Jewish believer. He was what they considered a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. We find this in the book of Acts, that that when the Apostle Paul was having struggles over whether or not these Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved, and if you don't know what circumcision is, we don't have time to go into that. No, I'm just kidding. It, it, it was, they, would have, they would cut the male organ. It was something that uh, Jews did to their children when they were young on the seventh day, and it was, it was a, a, a sign of a covenant between them and God. And so... Um, uh, if, if you came to Christ and, and you were a Gentile, these Messianic Jews would say, well, you need to be circumcised and you need to observe the law. And, and, and Paul was getting irritated with some of these folks, especially Peter, because Peter was, was declaring this in some regard. And, and so he went to a council in Jerusalem, and it was this James who was one of the pillars of the church who said, you know what, listen, Gentile believers don't have to be circumcised. And for some of you older fellows that aren't and you came to Christ, today we're rejoicing in that. Amen? Okay, good. So uh, he said, that's not necessary for faith in Christ. That's not necessary for faith in Christ. He says, however, it would be good if they observe the dietary laws, what they call kosher laws, uh, to abstain from food offered to idols. And James was saying, they said, but it's not necessary. He says, it'd be good. And the reason why James said that is he understood that for Jews, food was really important. Food was really important, and for fellowship, and this is what I dig about James, James understood the power of food in a church. <laughs> and, and some of you thought you're at Calvary Chapel, you're not, you're at Calvary Chapel. I love food, 
Everything we do is, is associated with food most of the time, right? There's going to be donuts after the service, and then coffee, and then we're going to have a potluck. And then when the sunshiners get together, there's always a meal. And then when you go and visit with somebody, you eat. And I just love eating. That's why I became a Christian. I just, it's all about food. Even the Lord in the sacrifice in the Old Testament, it was they'd take the fat and they would burn it. And then the smell from the barbecue would be a sweet aroma to his nostrils. I'm like, God, you rock. I love that too. I love the smell of barbecue. Amen. Now, I didn't understand the whole pork thing. I would have given up Judaism just for that. Uh, I, I love pork. I, I'm, I'm a bacon lover. Bacon is like meat candy. I love bacon. I love bacon in any form. I love, except for bacon sushi, but I love bacon. Anyone else love bacon? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so where were we? I don't know what it had to do with the... So. But uh, here, here you have James, and he's, he's trying to work with them and to bring unity between these two very distinct groups, Gentiles and Jews. How do we bring them together and have unity in the spirit between Gentile and Jews? These are dietary laws for thousands of years, and now we have these, these Gentiles that are coming into the faith, and we've got to figure out how we can eat at the same table together. And so they would lay out this, and, and he, would, he would declare to the Apostle Paul, because Paul was losing his ability to minister to the Jews because he would declare himself that I have been sent as an as, as, as a, uh, apostle to the Gentiles. But he, he had a love for the Jews and he wanted to see his brethren come to Christ. He says, I'd rather die and go to hell and, and see my brethren come to, to, to Christ. I mean, he had such a love for the Jew, but God had called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Gentile just means other than Jewish, which is most of us. And, and so Paul... Uh, was losing his connection with the Jewish people. And it was James that reestablished that by saying, you know, Paul, this is what we need to do. And he laid it out. And Paul was moved by it. And he made this declaration, Paul did, in regards to what James had written in uh, Acts 15. Paul wrote this declaration, 1 Corinthians 9. He said, For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant of all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. And, and Paul was saying, I am a Jew. But when I'm with Gentiles... I'm not saved by the law, so I'll eat whatever they offer. When I'm with the Jews, I understand that the dietary laws are important to them. and They can't get it out of their head, so I'll do the dietary laws with them. I get it. I can work in both worlds. I can work in both worlds. And I, and I think as Christians, we, be, we have these, these cultural sensitivities that we expect certain people. When I went over to Germany, Germans in, uh, German Christians drink beer. Some of you go, oh, I can't believe that. They're going to hell. Oh, stop it. You, you drink alcohol too. I do not. Baptist whiskey. You know what it is. It's NyQuil. <laughs> well, I, every now and then, yes, I'll have a little swig of that, but that, you know, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm feeling sick again. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> oh, look at all those bottles of NyQuil that we went through this week. You're not going to hell because you drink. You're not saved by the law. You're not to be mastered by anything. You're not to be under any mastery of anything. And James understood that. And he understood this, this unique gifting of the balance between grace and the law. And Christ came to fulfill the law. Now, do we just abandon the law? 
Do we, just do, do we just walk in that freedom that we have in Christ that we can engage in everything we want? No. So like, shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. There's a balance. When you've come to Christ, your life cleans up. It's not you got your get out of hell free card and you go back to your sins. James understood this. When you're saved, it changes you. When Christ becomes your Lord, it changes you. That's why James begins by saying, a bond servant of God and of Jesus Christ. And he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ, which means God. When he says bondservant, he means doulos, submission. I do whatever he wants. And however he wants me to do it. I am his and he is mine. End of story. When God says jump, I say how high. And you think, well, and that's that marriage between grace and the law. I've been saved by grace. I know that I'm failing. I know that I have failed. But I pursue and press on that, that this faith I have will reveal itself through works. I'm changing. I'm growing more and more like Christ every day. Can that be said for all of us? Or did you just get your get out of hell free card and put your life of sanctification on hold? You see, there's two terms. There's justification and there's sanctification. Both are in the scriptures. Justification is your get out of hell free card. You came to Christ and you were saved by grace. Not of works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And, and you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and He has forgiven you the multitude of your sins, past, present, and future. And He's cast them as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. He took His righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, and He imputed it. He put it on your account. And so now your wretched, sinful life is no longer seen that way by the Father. He now sees the righteousness of His Son put on your account that you receive by faith. Amen? So, you're justified. What does that mean? Just as if I'd never sinned. <laughs> Past, present, and future. <laughs> your righteousness is not your own. It was imputed, given to you. It's Jesus' righteousness. The Father looks at you. You've received it by faith, not by works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Amen. We all have our get-out-of-hell-free card. Woo! Let's do the wave. Okay, that didn't work. Now you do. You do. You're saved. He who's been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. Amen? If you can lose it, it was never eternal life to begin with. Anyone? Anyone? Right? Okay, so there it is. Now, what's this sanctification you're talking about, Pastor? Huh? Oh, sanctified. Well, that's maturity in Christ. See, you were all born on the operating table of being justified. You're a babe in Christ. Ah! Somebody slapped you. Whoosh! You're crying. Ah! Bottom. We've been doing this for years. You come in every Sunday. Right? That's the only meal you get is on Sunday. You don't open your Bibles. You're still barking at your spouse, your kids, your dog. You still are foul-mouthed. You're cussing. You're still addicted. You don't give up things. If you're being put on trial for being a Christian, there wouldn't be any evidence to convict you. Everyone at your workplace would be shocked to think you're a believer. What? Them? Are you kidding me? I know them. They cuss like a sailor. No, I, 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 I am a believer. I, I, got, I got the bottle. I, every Sunday I go, uh, I'm justified. I got my get out of hell free card right here. Hang on just a second. It's one of these pockets right here. It's in my other, it's my Sunday clothes I wear over there. 
Well, do you know what sanctification is? No, I don't. I know, I know what justification is. Just is different. Never sin. My sins are cast as far as east is from the west. Be remember no more. I'm saved. I'm, I'm going to heaven. My name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I raised my hand. I remember that, Pastor. You called and I kind of raised my hand. And then freedom just lifted. I'm so uh, good. But have you been sanctified? Don't know what that is. What do you mean sanctified? Sanctified means set apart. This is the second part. This is called maturity in Christ. This is why we're here. We're growing. Get the bottle out of our mouth. And let's start eating some solid food and let's start doing our own meals. Sanctified, set apart. That's what James is talking about. It's called a doulos, a bond slave. This is where you no longer do your will. You now do the will of God. You get it? You've been set apart to do his will. You've been saved to serve him. It's not your life. It's his. You've been purchased with a price, the blood of Christ. It is not your life to live. It is his. It's not about you anymore. It's about him. It's not about you getting to have your sin and get your get out of hell free card. It's growing up and maturing. And that's why James says, I am a bond servant. I mean, you you could camp on that term till the cows come home. Jesus returns. Bond servant. Doulos. Here's a, this, is, this is why this epistle is so unique. There's many, many authors of letters in the New Testament that call themselves doulos and bondservants. There's many of them. But not like this guy. This guy's unique above all the others. He's unique above all the others. You know why? He is the half-brother of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I have an older brother. I would have a huge problem calling myself a doulos or a bond slave of my brother. He's a good guy, but I don't want to serve him like that. I have things I want to do, and I don't need him telling me what they are. He did that most of my life. Could you imagine growing up with Jesus as your brother? Wouldn't that be pleasant? Why can't you do things like your brother? (laughs) I mean, I thought it was bad. Could you imagine being James? Your brother walked on water. When we ran out of wine, he fixed it. What have you done, you lazy slob? Come on, could you imagine? Has anyone ever had a sibling that just irritated you because they were good at everything they did? I had that. Irritating. And you, and you look at this and you think, wow, what an amazing guy James is. Well, it wasn't always that way. You see, in John chapter 7, verse 5, the, the scripture says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Even his own brothers didn't believe in him. It says, Jesus, his brother, said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then verse 5 says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. And you go, he had brothers? If you come from a Catholic background and you think that Mary was a perpetual virgin, uh, Jesus not only had a brother, he had four brothers and quite possibly two sisters, two or more sisters. Really? Yeah, the scriptures declare that. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe. Okay, Matthew 13, 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? And is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? 
Mark 6, 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Galatians 1, 19, but I saw none other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, Galatians 2.19, when James, Cephas, and John, who seem to be pillars, perceived, it, it, well, that's, that's not the best verse, but the idea is he was Jesus' brother. And some of you go, well, Mary was a perpetual virgin. Well, first of all, I don't, I don't hold to that. I don't believe that. I don't want to over-alienate our Catholic brothers and sisters, but I would say this. Um, he had brothers and sisters. I don't believe her personally to be the... A, a perpetual virgin, nor do I believe Scripture declares that. That comes from church history, or I would just say church tradition, not history, church tradition of the Catholic Church where they've come up with that idea. They, they've tried to write off these passages of Scripture by saying that these brothers were actually cousins. Of, the Scripture doesn't say that in its original context. It doesn't say that. And they say, well, they, um, Joseph had been married before and these were his half-brothers. Well, they were probably half-brothers and half-sisters because Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. They were conceived of Mary and Joseph. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and they were saying, well, Joseph was a widower before he met Mary. That's why Joseph was older. Okay, Scripture doesn't say that. What we do have... And, and if you, you know, we, I will agree with my, my, my Catholic brothers and sisters. I will agree that they're half-brothers, half-sisters. I'll agree with that. I'll, I'll share with that. Perpetual virgin, I, I, I don't buy it. But this idea, we can agree with this. They were half-brothers and half-sisters. Now, my wife comes from a blended family. She has half-brothers. She has half-brothers. And um, I'll tell you what, there's no difference. Um, you know, I think uh, Zach uh, Schallenbarger, who, who taught here ways back, he's got half-brothers, half-sisters. And, and uh, he, you watch that, that, that man, that young man with, with his siblings. He loves them. He just loves them. I remember on Mother's Day, he says, I'm blessed. I have two moms. You know, in that sense, that Mother's Day is supposed to be between two homes, in a sense. He has a stepmom and his biological mom, his mother, and, and, and lives in both homes. And so when he looks at his siblings... They're not half anything. They're whole. Right? Hello? I know it's first service. You better work with me. <laughs> They're whole. And so, and, and his love for them is, is evident. And so, uh, this is my point. James, his brother, was Jesus. And, and, and in, in John chapter 7, he didn't believe him to be the Son of God. In Mark chapter 3, his brothers and his mother as well, Mary thought that Jesus was insane. You go, no, where are you getting all this? I'm going to read it to you. Check this out. Mark chapter 3 starts with verse 20. Multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, when Jesus' family, that's the idea in the Greek. When his family heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him for they said he is out of his mind. His family thought he was nuts. We grew up with him. And he's, everybody's following him. That's my brother. What, he's, he's nuts. That's James. His mother going, he's a little over the top. I mean, I remember the angel coming and everything, but all these people following, you're getting a little out of your britches, Mr. Funny Pants. 
I don't know if she said that, but I don't know. And the scribes tagged in on it because he was, you know, prophet is without honor in his own in his own country. And the scribes saw the family was going after him. And so the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. That's brilliant logic. Um, Satan casts out demons by the power of Satan. Yeah. So Jesus called them to himself, and he said to them in parables, okay, how can Satan cast out Satan? Well, he can. I'm just not sure why he would want to. I mean, they're trying to find anything to accuse Jesus with, and so they say that he casts out Satan by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, listen, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Okay? Does everybody get that? Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then he says, and if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. You can imagine James and the brothers and his sisters and his mom going, uh, yeah, this is true. I mean, we are divided as to who he is. And he is kind of stepping out of the role of what he should be doing. I mean, this, is, this isn't anything that we were really accustomed to. And he says, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house, plunder his goods, unless he first binds a strong man, and then he will plunder his house. And, and what, he, what he declares is he just says, you can't divide a kingdom. A house divided will not stand. And then he goes on later, and this was powerful. It says, um, then his brothers and his mothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. They're going, you know what? Come on, Jesus, you, you, let's come home. And this is his response. As James is sitting out there with m- mom and the other brothers, the other siblings, Jesus responds and he says, and a multitude was sitting around Jesus and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered and said to them, saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. You can imagine James going, wow, he is really serious about this. He really thinks he's the Messiah. Wow. He is an uppity brother now, isn't he? And we find in John 7, he, his own brothers didn't believe him to be the Messiah. And Jesus, the room is so packed, people are following him, you can't even eat bread. That means you can't get your hand up to your mouth to eat bread. That's how packed the room was. And and they're coming to him because he's casting out demons. The sick are are healed, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. And his brother and his mothers and his sisters are all irritated, saying he's insane, get him out of there. He's he's, he's, He's just believing his own press. They've dismissed it as well. They've written off all the miracles. Miracles don't save people. They don't save people. You may see a miracle, and you know what? The minute a miracle happens, you know what the next thing you're going to do? You're going to try to explain it, and then you're going to go back to your stubborn old ways. You're going to say to God, if you do this, I will will serve you. He does it, and you go, well, you know, it's just the alignment of the planets, and it wasn't really. Listen, you're not going to be saved by a miracle. It's not going to happen. Maybe there's a slim chance. 
But even if you saw a miracle or you witnessed a miracle, you would dismiss it or rationalize it so you could go back to your sinful ways. You know you need a Savior. You know it. And you know God's word to be true. Here's the problem. You love your sin more than you love God. It's that simple. It's that simple. It's not that there isn't enough evidence or you haven't been given enough proof. You just don't want to do it. And that's how James was. He was just like you and me at that stage. And in the midst of this, he's like, nah, I don't know. I don't know. He really, he's, he's irritating. Try living with this guy. Everything he does is good. He probably, he probably hated him, had animosity. But I got to tell you, something amazing happened. He went, he went from unbelief to belief, and then he went to leadership. He became a pillar. He became a pillar in the body of Christ and in the church in Jerusalem. He was even martyred. They, they, it's been purported that he was thrown off the highest point of the temple. He didn't die when he landed, and so they just stoned him to death. He died a martyr's death. He was praising God the whole time. They said that he prayed so much that the calluses on his knees made him look like he had, you know, the feet of camels. They called him James the Just because the way he lived, that, that the, the, the oxygen in the room would change when he would step in. There was just something about his, his presence that would, would change a room. Does that happen when you walk into a room in your sanctification? Or do they even know you're a believer? When James would walk in, everything would change. How do you get from a place where you're looking at the Son of God who happens to also be your brother, you're looking at him going, I don't buy it. Not only is he not the Messiah, I would almost go as far as to say he's insane, he's mad, he's on the brink of insanity, and he needs to come home. Mom even agrees, and so do all the siblings. Come home, son. Brother, you're out of your mind. And somewhere between John 7 and Acts 1, everything changed. Acts 1.14, the scripture says that, that they were in the upper room and they were waiting. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came. It was Pentecost. It says that, that not only was James' his brother there, but so were Mary and all of the other siblings and Jesus' brothers. They were all there in the upper room. They all came to faith. We know that one of the things that led James to receive Jesus as his Messiah and to recognize him as God is that Jesus, when he was crucified and resurrected, resurrected he appeared to James in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, um, that, that he specifically appeared to James. That would be trippy. Hey, brother. Look, see the wounds? Not only am I your brother, I'm your God. Yeah, yeah, you are. And I was completely wrong about you. It's okay, so was the rest of the world. So was I. And James gives his life. What does that mean? Dulos, bond slave. He surrenders it all. He just lays it at the foot of the cross. And he just says, I I'm, I'm here to serve the Lord. I surrender everything to God. And at that point, one of the things that happens was this. When he calls him Dulos and he surrenders his life to him, 
in, in uh, Acts 1.14 and also 1 Corinthians 15. And he gets to this place where he says, bondservant of God. You know what he doesn't say in the entire introduction of his epistle? He doesn't say, oh, <laughs> I forgot. I am James. James Bond, servant <laughs> of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. I send you greetings. Not only is James Bond, servant, I happen to be mm, the humble brother <laughs> of Jesus. Nowhere in his epistle does he refer to himself as the brother of Jesus. I, w I would be using that. Anyone? That's like a pass to backstage right there. Jesus, coming through. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it anywhere. He just declares himself clearly and without hesitation. I am a slave. I'm a bondservant. I am in servitude to another. You don't need to know anything about me. You need to know about him. You know who he is? He is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Kyrios in the Greek, everyone understood without reservation what it meant. He considered Jesus God. It was the name that Hellenistic Jews used for God. And he just says, he is Kyrios. He is God. And who he was to me before is irrelevant. Who he is to me now is everything. Who he was to me before is irrelevant. Who he is to me now is everything. He doesn't have to use this to get into anything. And the part that blesses me, especially when we see how James used to act, how James used to act, when he would be standing outside the crowded synagogue as the crowds were pressing in on his brother. And he'd say, he's insane. What are you people doing? Give it up. Mom, we got to get him out of here. And then he heard Jesus say these words. A house divided against itself will not stand. James was there in the Sermon on the Mount when he heard each of the Beatitudes. He heard what it meant to be happy. He referred to the Beatitudes over 15 times in this epistle that we're going to read. And the powerful thing about this epistle is this. He was a man who sought the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, as Paul said in Ephesians 4. He was a man who wanted to see the church unified. He understood the distinct differences between a Gentile believer and a Jewish believer, and he wanted to get them together at the table with food. He said, look, just overlook. It's to a man's benefit to overlook an offense. Just, just overlook the dietary laws. It's food. Eat it. It's a matzah ball. Have some. I know you guys aren't familiar with it, and there's no pork on the table, but it's food. And it's, it's not so much the food that's there. It's the people that are serving it. Enjoy their presence. He said, I spent all of my life in the presence of the Son of God, and I never knew who he was because of my bitterness and my judgmental attitude and my preconceived ideas. 
and somewhere between John 7, when I, 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 I said I didn't believe in him, to Acts 1.14, my world was rocked and my life was changed. And listen, I remember being there calling him crazy and watching him minister to a room in complete clarity, saying that a house divided against itself will not stand. He's now been crucified, buried, and resurrected. And he is my Messiah, and he lives in me, and I live for unity as he did. I remember his priestly prayer that we would be one as he and the Father are one. My whole life is to be lived for his purposes. I am his bondservant. I am his slave. Being his brother is irrelevant. Why does that strike us with significance? Real simply, what are your hang-ups? What hinders you from serving God? I mean, Thanksgiving is, a, is an amazing holiday celebration for familial issues. I go through depression every Thanksgiving. I don't know why. It's the blues I'm, I'm agitated. It, I don't know what it is. Some of you are going, well, we need to analyze that. Great. Save your money. It takes me into time with the Lord. But I do know this. I, Thanksgivings weren't a lot of fun growing up. They just weren't a lot of fun. There were always issues. Somebody was always being critical. There was just something bitter in the family meal. And the words that were shared. The fellowship wasn't sweet. The time was annoying. And I'm sure that I contributed to that in a great measure. Our humor was caustic. It was anything but joyful. And I don't enjoy it to this day. The smell of turkey, that's why I wanted it just covered in cognac. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, what is it? What's the hurt? What's hindering you from recognizing Jesus as the Messiah? What, what familial issue is it? What unforgiveness is burdening you? What is it? Because James had to come to a place where he had to let it go. So do you and I. We've got to let it go. You've got to get from the place of having rights as a sibling to surrendering those rights as a bond slave. Don't walk around with this idea that you're James Bond and you have the license to kill. You don't walk around with the ability to shoot people with your words. You don't have the right to demand whatever you want and walk through life as though you own it. I often think about James Bond. If we really had a picture of who he was in real life, he'd be dying of syphilis and alcoholism. Anyone? He would be a wreck. You don't live that way and survive. And yet we walk through life as though this is who we are and we emulate that 
and, and lift that more than James the bondservant. That we put away our identity of who we thought ourselves to be and instead find ourselves in who we're called to be. We're slaves. That's it. We're slaves. We have no rights anymore. It's not my will, but His will be done. We, we want to go through life and demand this get-out-of-hell-free card and raise our hand to receive this justification. But James says, it's time to grow up. It's no longer about sibling rivalry and all your past issues. Give it up and become a bondservant. This is your calling. This is your hope. Now, the beautiful thing about it is when we can get through this very first verse, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we can do that, embrace it, everything he's about to teach us is going to take us into a maturity that many of us have yet to experience. You will not be able to deal with verse 2 if you can't embrace verse 1. Verse 2 is not pleasant. My brethren, ready? I'll just give you a preview for next week. My brethren. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Count it all joy. Oh, yes. When you fall into various trials. Hey. Huh? Can we do another book? Who wants trials? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Oh, that's awful. Testing? We're going to do tests? I don't want to test. Patience? Ooh. Trials? Is there another book we could study? You don't get to verse 2 without recognizing who you are in verse 1. Amen? He is God, and we are His servants. That is maturity. He is God, and we are His servants. And you know what? You have no rights anymore. If James, his brother, surrendered his rights, you think you have any? Lord, you owe me this. I'm sorry, what? Oh, I am a debtor to no man. Well, I have issue with you, God, because you didn't... I'm sorry, when did you become the center of the universe? Do you guide Orion through the night sky? Do you tell the seas how far they can go and where their borders are? Do you hold the heavens in the span of your hand? Who are you to tell me anything? I love you. I gave you my son. Now trust me. Let's get over you being James Bond and demanding. And let's get to you being James Bond's servant. And we're all going to do just fine. And then we're going to understand the maturity of faith. And all of us are going to get the bottles out of our mouths and start growing up in Jesus. Who wants to mature? Amen? We're going to have a year of maturity. 2013 is going to be a growth for us like we've never experienced before. I'm excited about it because there will be testings. There will be trials. And we're going to come forth as gold. God is going to richly bless us. So get excited. Put your seatbelts on and get ready to explore the book of James. All right, let's pray.